Thanks for checking out the weekly Harmony Church podcast. For more information and resources about Harmony Church or any of the Harmony events, check out the Harmony Church website or Harmony Church Facebook page today. But tonight I want to launch with a favourite subject of mine, a favourite subject I know of Gideon and Catherine's and of this house, something that's really important. And uh, I want to talk about being established in identity. Being established in identity. I've just explained, uh, as I've gone through a little bit about who I am, some of the identities that I hold. Uh, I am a pastor. I'm an author, apparently. Uh, I am a son, uh, but I'm also a brother. I'm a father and I'm a husband. Uh, I'm also an uncle. I'm also a nephew. I'm also a grandson. I have multiple identities in my life. And that's one of the things that makes life complex is that we are multifaceted people. We're not just monotone, all right? You should see the view I've got right now. This is a multicoloured, multifaceted community. It's a beautiful thing. And we as individuals have multiple identities. And it doesn't mean we're all weird and you don't have a multiple personality disorder, okay? No, when your complexity works together in harmony... See how I did that? When your complexity, name, name drops straight, straight away. When your complexity works together in harmony, it's a beautiful thing. There's something different between something being complex and something being complicated. Okay, complication is when there's all types of things happening and they're just not working together. Okay, that's when things are complicated. We've got relationships like that. We have businesses like that. Sometimes you have churches like that. They're just complicated. Okay, but there's something to be called complexity, which is where you have many different things, but they work together in harmony. Okay, and so relationships, I'll talk about that on Saturday. But just for you, you have many identities. I have many identities and they work together to form the complexity of who we are. And we need to be established in the identity that God has given us. And we need to embrace not only our identity, but first and foremost, the identity of Christ, because he also has many identities. He is a shepherd. He is a word. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb of God. God is our father, yet he is our lover, yet he is also our big brother. I mean, all these identities, none of them are the full truth on their own, but together they form the composite, complex, beautiful picture of who God is. All right, so I want to speak about identity uh, tonight, because for us to be established in identity is, is basically the rock-solid foundation on which Jesus said he will build his church. Because in Matthew 16, he's walking along with his mates and he says, guys, who do people say that I am? Who do people say my identity is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, some say the other prophets. And he says, well, fair enough, but who do you say that I am? And Peter often is the case, the first to speak up, probably like Gideon. And he speaks up and he says, oh, oh, pick me, pick me. I know, I know. And he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. This is your identity. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because this revelation was not given to you by man, but it came to you from heaven. And then he said this, and now that you know who I am, I'm going to tell you who you are. Now that you know who my identity, now that you've seen what heard is what heaven has said about me, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Yeah, now that you know that, I want to tell you who you are. You are Peter. Not Simon, you are Sepha. You are Peter. You are a stone. And then he said, and on this rock, I will build my church. 
On what rock? Could it be? Because we all believe that the rock is Christ. Okay, Paul explains that the revelation of what heaven says Jesus is. On that established foundation, established, okay, there it is, name dropped again. On that foundation, I will build my church. But could it be that tied in, inextricably linked to who Jesus is, is also having an understanding of who you are? Now that you know who I am, this is who you are. And on that rock, that rock of identity, knowing me and therefore knowing who you are because of me, on that rock solid foundation I'm going to build a community it's important to know who Jesus is and it's vital once you know him he begins to reveal who you are because of him and this is especially important for us when we want to fight the good fight of faith because it's what Paul said to young Timothy he said I need you to fight the good fight of faith there's a battle against us we fight and he says you do it like this you do it by making the good confession He said, you fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You remember that scripture, 1 Timothy 6? And the good confession, now some of us, we grew up maybe Catholic or something, and when we hear the word confession, you think, well, good confession means confessing my sin. That's what you do in the black box, you talk to the man behind the screen, okay? Confession means that. Paul says, you made the good confession. But then he says this, He says that confession is the same confession Christ made before Pontius Pilate. Now, Christ did not confess his sin before Pontius Pilate. Christ was on sin before Pontius Pilate. And if you read that story, what came out of his mouth was this. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, yes, I am. Christ confessed his identity when it didn't look like he was king. When no one was worshipping him as king, when no one was acknowledging him as king, when his identity was challenged, Jesus made the good confession to Pontius Pilate by saying, this is who I am. I know who I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And, And Paul writes to Timothy and said, just as Christ made the good confession to Pontius Pilate, so that's how you fight the good fight of faith, by knowing who you are. And even when circumstances don't look like it, You say who you are. That's the good confession. The word in the Greek for good confession. Yeah, come on, give a thing for that, whatever. Help me out, help me out, come on. The word good confession in the Greek is homos logos. Logos is word. Homo, homos is same. Okay, pretty obvious. Homos logos, you say the same word. What God says about you, you say. This is one of the most pivotal moments in Israel's history, number 12, Numbers 12 of 13 and 14, when they go to the promised land to go and spy it out. You remember that story? 12 men go across the border. They all come back with a different report. Okay, two of them come back with a good report. Their names were Joshua and 10 guys come back with a bad report. Their names were nobody knows. Okay, right. And what those 10 blokes said, blokes, what those 10 guys said was, we can't take the land because we are grasshoppers. They didn't come back and say, we can't take the land because God is too small. They said that we can't take the land because we are too small. It was a challenge of their identity. They didn't say what God said of them. So Joshua and Caleb acknowledged the reality of enemies in the land. Yeah, they're giants. They're massive. But we can certainly do it. Caleb said, we can certainly do it. Not we should do it, but we can do it. That is faith. 
A lot of people know what you sh- we should do. Faith is saying, I know what I should do and I know what I can do because I know who my God is and I know who I am because of Him. I am grounded. I am established in identity. And that is what I'm wanting to open with tonight. Now, we don't have time to go through all the multiplicity of identities that we have as believers in Christ. I mentioned some of my natural identities before. We have covenantal or spiritual supernatural identities. I don't have time to go into all of them, but as a three-point preacher, I've chosen three. Because that's how I roll, okay? You're going to get three points tonight. They all start with the same letter. And if you've never heard me preach before, basically, that's it. I just do that all the time. I want to share with you three core identities. They are major ones. I'm not saying they're the three biggies, but they are three pretty major ones. And the reason I've chosen these is because they are the three identities that Paul uses in the opening uh, greetings of almost all of his letters. We're going to have a read. If you've got your Bible on you, we're going to turn to Romans just now. And we're going to look at some of the opening greetings of Paul's letters. You know those verses that you just read over quickly because you don't think they're important? Those ones. Those ones, because all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is useful. We're going to read the ones that you read over because those ones contain powerful truths about who you are in Jesus. Three things. You are sons. You are servants. And you are saints. I am a son. I am a servant. And I am a saint. And those three identities come over and over again through the pen of the Apostle Paul. That's what we're going to have a look at and then we'll land it later on. Are you still with me? Great. Established in identity. Here we go. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Come on, say servant. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Who's he writing to? Verse 7 he tells us. Verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, we are sons. Because Jesus is Lord, Paul says, I am a servant. And because Holy Spirit is holy, so we are holy and He calls us saints. That's what saints means. It means holy ones. I am a son because God is Father, the Trinity. That's what I'm trying to do in case you missed it. God the Father makes us sons. Jesus the King makes me a servant. And Holy Spirit who is holy means I am a saint. I am a son. I am a servant. I am a saint. Next letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This might seem laborious, but I want you, you're going to remember this now. Every time you open these letters, you're going to go, ah, don't ignore the first two verses. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. If these two men are brothers, then what does that make them? Sons. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints or to be holy. Either way together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have a Bible, might be the New American Standard, New King James, something like that. And where it says you are called to be holy or you are called to be saints, the words to be are in italics. Does anyone have that in their translation here? Take a risk. No? Okay. Yeah, you do? 
It's in italics. Okay. To be saints is in italics. And the reason for that is <laughs> they're not there. They don't, they, those words to be aren't actually there. The most literal translations are, say who are called saints. Not called to be saints, but called saints. And our editors in some of the thought for thought uh, translations, I talk about this in my, my new book about what translations do. They tried, they imposed their view of what Paul is saying. So sometimes they add words because they think that's what Paul means. But literally word for word, it says those who are called saints, not called to be saints, but those who already are, you are called saints. And even the Corinthian church, the ones who were acting very, very poorly, he opens by saying, you are called saints. Second Corinthians chapter one, the next letter does exactly the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I hope that doesn't confuse you there about the Bible thing, but I'll, we can maybe talk about that another time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints in Acacia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, that makes me a... Because Jesus is Lord, it makes me a... And he calls this church, this rat bag bunch of church and all those in Acacia, he calls them saints. Turn to Ephesians, skip Galatians, go to Ephesians chapter one. And the opening verse is there. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is Father, that makes me a son. If Jesus is Lord, that means I'm a servant and he calls this church saints, sons, servants and saints. One more, I think you've got the point. Philippians chapter one, verse one, Paul and Timothy. And he says, we are servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with their leaders, overseas and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, that means I am a Son, because Jesus is Lord, I call myself a servant. And he writes to this church and he calls them saints. And what I love about this is that he doesn't address the leaders first. You know, when you write a letter, you normally address it to the most important people first. To the president and the vice president and the board. Yeah, and that and then the kid and then the plebs. No, are you allowed to say plebs? It, that, that has Greek, it has Roman origins in the Roman system. They had uh, two different, anyway, I won't go into the plebs. I almost had a history lesson from Rome. Um, he addresses the saints first. You are the most important people in the church. And the leaders are with you. Not above, as in more important, but with you. He says, I'm addressing the saints together with their leaders. This is a side by side, a church that is side by side, each with different gifts and the leaders in front leading. Okay, not above, as in more important, but we are together. We stand shoulder to shoulder. We stand by side by side. And he addresses the saints. Why do the Ephesian four gifts exist? They don't exist for themselves. They exist to equip the Saints, it is the Ephesian 4.12 gift that is the prize. There are seven gifts in Ephesians 4. It's not the fivefold ministry, it's seven. It begins with Jesus, number one, who gave 
apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. That's six, so that they can equip the saints. It begins with Jesus. It ends with the saints looking like Jesus and in between are the Ephesians 4. That is, that is totally off what I'm meant to be speaking about. The point is this, because God is Father, we are sons. Because Jesus is Lord, we are servants. And He calls this church and every other, He calls them saints. The Holy Spirit lives in us, His holy temple. We are holy, we are saints. My goal today, tonight, is to explain these three identities to see you more firmly established in these identities so you can fight the good fight of faith, convinced like Jesus, making the good confession, this is who I am. Amen? You are sons. The first identity a human gets when they are born is that they are announced as the son of somebody or the daughter of somebody. Before you ever had a first name, you were given a surname. Your first identity is that you're a son or a daughter of someone else. I don't know if you've noticed, but apparently Harry and Megan had a kid this week. (laughs) And the moment that boy was born, he had a surname. He had an identity. He is the son of Harry, son of Megan. Took a couple of days to announce his name. And for some of you, your parents may not even know your name for a couple of days. Some parents do that. But the point is this, your very first identity that you are gifted with before you've done anything is that you are a son or daughter of someone. My friends, you are a son of God and that is an incredible gift to you. It is one of the most amazing revelations that Jesus came to bring that God is Father. Jesus had a twofold Easy way to summarize it, twofold ministry. Number one, it was to reveal the Father and then it was to reconcile us to the Father. When Jesus said in his high priestly prayer before he died, he said, Father, John 17, I have finished the work you've given me. And he said that before he even went to the cross. I finished the work. Doesn't make sense, Jesus. You haven't died yet. How can you say you've finished the work? Well, the work that he'd finished was that he had revealed the Father by his life and his character so that he could then do the next bit of work, which was to reconcile us to the Father, okay? So that we can be reconciled to him and we can become sons. The gospel assures us that our sonship in Christ is secure. Galatians 3, for all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You were baptized into Christ. You've been clothed and covered with him no matter what your gender, no matter what your upbringing, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your Jewish roots, okay? All of you were baptized and clothed into Christ and you are sons. John 1 says, he, though the world was created through him and they rejected them, nevertheless, those who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Not natural descent, not a husband's will, He gave the right to become called children of God. John 3 says how deep the Father's love for us, that He has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, sons of God. And He says, and that is what we are. We are God's sons. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, He predestined us to be chosen as His sons, to be adopted as His sons. 
You see, you are a son of God by adoption, which is a legal term. The new covenant teaches me, covenant is a legal term. The new covenant teaches me that God's done a legal deal that makes me His son. He's adopted me. I showed you a picture before of my two brothers and my sister. Have you noticed my sister looks a little bit different to the others? Not because she's a chick, because she's Korean. My sister's Korean. She was not born into my family. She was not biologically my sister. She was adopted as my sister. And the moment she was adopted, the way adoption works is simple. It illustrates that you are outside the family to begin with. Not born into the family. You're born outside the family. That's a picture of adoption. My sister was born outside of our family, but my parents chose her. They selected her. They said, she is the one that we want. My parents paid the price and went out of their way to go and get her. My parents signed a deal, handed over a payment so they could legally change her identity. That day, her legal status changed. She had a new surname. And from a legal perspective, all the debts of her previous family were wiped away. And she inherited all the rights of a Mansbridge. She became a Mansbridge without behaving any way. She became a Mansbridge without doing anything. Our parents chose her. She walked out of the orphanage with them. They, they, they paid the price. This is what Jesus does with us. He finds people outside the family for we were all born outside of God's family in a legal sense. We are legally out of relationship with God. That's the picture of adoption. Jesus, God comes to us in Jesus. He pays the price. He signs the adoption papers with His own blood. And He says, I choose you. I want you to be my kid. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And when He chose us, He knew what He was getting. Because it says in Ephesians, He chose us to be adopted as His sons through His predestined will and pleasure. He took delight in it and He put thought into it. He thought about you when He chose you. He didn't make a mistake. He thought about you. He knew what He was getting and He chose you to be. That's what the new covenant teaches me. My new covenant revelation teaches me I am legally a son and that will not change. My surname has been changed. I'm a son of God. That's good news. So we be established in that. Legally, I'm changed. But my new creation revelation, you see, the gospel is more than just something that's legal. It is something that is literal. Something literally changed with me. I literally, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has received the new covenant, has legally been placed into Jesus, he becomes a new creation. So John takes this revelation further. And he says in 1 John chapter 3, he says, you have been born from above. You were legally adopted in, but more than that, you were literally reborn. You were born from above. And he said, and God's sperma lives in you. It's in the Greek. God's seed lives within you. He's using a sexual picture to say you've been born of God. God's very DNA, when you were born again, spiritually speaking, your DNA changed. You became a new person. 
You became something new, a new spirit within you. My sister's biology, her DNA did not change because the adoption picture, as true as it is, has limitations like all pictures do. This is why the Bible has many pictures to explain who we are. And who God is, because every picture has limitations. So John comes on and says, you've been born of God. You are a son legally. You are a son literally. Your challenge is now to live out that identity as a lifestyle. You are a son legally established. You are a son literally. My DNA has changed. I have God within me. Your challenge is now to live out that identity as a lifestyle. You are a son. And arguably, the fatherhood of God is one of the most primary revelations Jesus came to bring. You know that. The Old Testament refers to God as Father maybe six times. The New Testament, over 230 times. It is a massive, massive deal, the fatherhood of God. And I'm sure you've you've, you've heard some preaching and teaching on that before. But God the Father speaks to Jesus at His baptism. And he says, the first words Jesus, spoken over Jesus publicly. In fact, every time God speaks over Jesus publicly, he calls him his son, each time. In his baptism, he says, this is my son whom I love and I'm pleased with him. He speaks acceptance and he speaks affirmation. Well done. He says, welcome and well done. He says, I'm pleased with him. He affirms him. And then the next time he speaks to him at the transfiguration, he says this. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Acceptance. Affirmation. My dad's pleased with me. He doesn't just accept me. He's pleased with me. And then authority. Listen to him. This is what grace does. This is what identity does. Identity, knowing God's grace, knowing God's word to us that we are sons, makes us, we're accepted, we're affirmed, and we have authority. This is what the prodigal son story shows us. It's not really the prodigal son story. It's the kissing father story. Because the main character is not the son. The main character is the dad. He's the focus. Okay, He should be the focus if you read it. It's the kissing father or the running father story, the celebrating father. He welcomes his son. He accepts him. He affirms him by throwing him a party. Yeah? And he accepted him when he smelled of pig's poo, (laughs) prostitutes perfume, and he'd squandered his wealth. He accepted him in that condition because his identity as a son had not changed. His behavior did not change his identity. His behavior did not unsun him. Now, he was not living as a son, but literally he was a son and legally he was still a son. Some of you may recognize some of you may recognize this girl she's a Ukrainian and her name I have to read it is on the screen Oksana Mayala does anyone recognize her Okay this is maybe 15 or so years ago they found this girl in uh, the Ukraine she'd run away from home when she was 3 a bit of a rough background and uh, for 4 years they found her when she was 7 she'd been living with wild dogs and when they found her she looked like this She was seven, but she didn't speak. No one had taught her. She hadn't been with humans for four years. She barked. She growled. She walked around on all fours. She ate like a dog. She drank like a dog. She slept with the dogs. 
she operated personal hygiene and, and uh, etc. like a dog. She lived the life of a dog for four years until the authorities found her. Now, how many of you know that behaviour did not change the fact that genetically, biologically, chromosomally, chromosomally, <laughs> she was a human. A female human that did not change her identity, nor did it change her legal identity. She was still the daughter of her parents. Now, she was not conscious of that reality. And so she did not live in that reality. But her behaviour did not change her identity. My identity, even if I do not behave like a son, when I come into the new covenant, faith in Christ, covered in Him, I become legally a son of God. When the Holy Spirit comes upon me, when I confess Christ the Lord, I'm recreated, I'm literally a son of God. And even if I don't live out that identity because of poor education or bad decisions or whatever it might be, even if I do not live that out, my identity does not change. I do not become a dog even if I bark like one. I am a son of God. That is the power of identity. Because as you know, many of us or many people question their identity. The son remained a son. And that is true with you. And so the father welcomes the son. He accepts him. He affirms him by throwing him a party. And then he puts a signet ring on his finger and he gives him authority. A signet ring is like a signature ring. It says, this is my dad's ring. I can go to the market. I can buy stuff. I've got the authority of my dad. He had authority given to him. That was his son. Because as Galatians 3 to 4 says, I explain it in my book, your sonship or your daughtership, okay? I'm trying to be gen... It is, it's a first century context, so it is son. The, the sonship, it is not just you being God's child, but it's you being an adult son. It's you being an adult son, having both the privileges of sonship and the responsibility of representing your dad and having his authority. Yeah? I've explained this here before. But the new covenant, when I know God accepts me and loves me, God's my dad. And if I've got needs, I can go to his house and ask him whatever, for whatever I want. Yeah. I can go to my dad's fridge, go to the kitchen, open the fridge, say, Dad, I need this. Thanks. And my dad meets my needs because I'm his kid. But when I understand I'm an adult son, I understand I'm not just a kid going to my dad to meet his No, no, no. I become my dad's representative. So I stand with my chest out as an adult and it's not that I go to heaven to get my needs met. I understand I walk with heaven inside of me. I become a walking, talking fridge. (laughs) So I have my father's goods within me to give out because I have the authority of my dad. This is one of the reasons that in certain situations, grace teaching, whatever that is, has got a bad rap with certain people because they just, certain people, they don't, Embrace grace in all its truth. And Colossians says, God's word has borne fruit in you because you heard the gospel and embraced God's grace in all its truth. Well, grace in the the framework of identity says that God accepts me. Yes, God affirms me. Yes, and God authorizes me to represent him as his ambassador on this planet. Okay, God authorizes, all that is grace. So if you if you just stay in the if you just stay in the realm of God affirms me, God accepts me, yeah, but God also 
calls you to be an ambassador and has put a ring on your finger. So stand up because that is how God has graced you as well. It is part of your sonship. And everybody said, next thing, I'll be quicker on these. Because Christ is God is Father, I am His Son. And because Jesus is Lord, I am a... There are five authors that we know of, depending on who you think wrote um, Hebrews, in the New Testament. And all of them refer to themselves as servants or refer to who they're writing to as servants of Christ, which is really interesting when you consider that in John 15, I think it's verse 15, Jesus said to his friends one day, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. He says, I no longer call you servants. And yet Peter, who was there that day, says, I'm a servant of Christ. In John, he says, I no longer call you servants. And yet John, who was there that day, writes and says, servant of Christ. In the Gospels, he says, I no longer call you servants. And yet Jude, Jesus' own blood brother, says, I'm a servant. He, he says, I don't call you servants. Who's the other guy? James. I'm a servant of Christ. He says to his disciples, I, Jesus, do not okay, call you mm-hmm, servants. And Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ and I want you to become one as well. So what's the deal with that? How can they say something that Jesus says, I don't call you that? Come back next week and Gideon will explain. (laughs) The word he uses there for servant in the Greek is doulos. And it refers to a voluntary slave. It's a throwback to Deuteronomy 15 where Israel had this law that said, once you have a servant for a certain period of time, you've got to release him and let him go free. And so the servant would go free. But then that servant would remember how good his master was and think, you know what? I'm better off working for him. He's flipping awesome. So the servant, the freed man, turns around, goes back to his ex-master and says, I know you no longer call me servant, but I volunteer. I call myself a servant. Yeah. The whole nailing the ear to the all, all that weird stuff, that's that. It's a voluntary say, I volunteer myself to serve you. So Jesus says to us, I do not impose servanthood upon you, but we, in response to what he has done, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, and John, we say, I choose to serve you because you're an awesome king. I've seen who you are from heaven. You are Lord, and I call myself a servant because that is a glad heart in response to who you are. And so Jesus models, as you know, servanthood for us. When he comes into Jerusalem and he's worshipped. I didn't do that very well. And he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey and they worship him. They sing Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the king. And the very next chapter in John, it says he took off his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on his knees and he washed his friend's feet. And he says, now I would love for you to follow my example and do this as well. The king that came to serve, and Peter, of course, always the first one to speak up, said, no, Lord, you're wrong. You 
can't do this. You are wrong. And Jesus said the most profound thing to him. He said, listen, mate, if you do not let me serve you, you can't have any part of me. If you do not let me serve you. This is the example. This is the servant king that we serve. And we, like Jesus, willingly call ourselves servants. Because you go ahead, you read Philippians chapter 2. It says that he who was in very nature God, willingly let that go and made himself a servant. When he said, follow in my example, he meant let go and make yourself a servant. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am a free man and a slave to no one, I make myself a servant so that I can win some. I do not make myself a servant for God's sake in a sense that, you know, my sonship has secured my eternity. But as a son, I make myself a servant so I can help secure the eternity of others. I am a servant to no man, Paul says, but I make myself a a servant, so that quite possibly I might win some. I make myself a servant. Isn't that powerful? I shared this a few years ago. I hope it's not worn out. But there's another really powerful benefit of serving that many people miss. And God showed me this a few years ago, and it's really stuck with me. Jesus is at a festival once and he said, listen, if you're weary and you're worn out and you're tired, I want you to come to me and find rest for your soul. And he said the most strange thing. He says, in order to find rest for your soul, I want you to watch me and learn from me. And he said, I want you to take my yoke upon you because my yoke is and my burden is light. Now a yoke is a, Basically, a contraption that goes over oxen's shoulders so that they can work. Jesus said, if you want to find rest, come to me and work. That's a bit weird, isn't it? If Jesus had said, if you want to find rest for your souls, come to me and lie down on a hammock, I'd get that. If you want to find rest for your soul, come in and lie down on the massage table and I'll have a crack, you know. Yes, Jesus, I get that. But he said, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Now, I've always pictured that as Jesus saying, here, Gideon, come to me and here's a yoke, wear it. But don't worry, it's light and easy. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, come here and I'll give you your yoke. He said, come to me and put my yoke on you. You see, what a yoke does is it joins two animals together. Jesus is coming, watch me, I'm a servant. Now stand next to me. Let's wear this yoke together and let's serve together because when you're serving with me, you'll find you're working, but it's light and it's easy and that will bring rest to your soul because you and I know some of the most exhausted people around are those who are self-centered and selfish. The whole world revolves around them and one of the answers to them actually finding peace in their life is to get their eyes off their little world to put their eyes on the servant, to sidle up next to Jesus and to work with him and put their eyes on other people. Becoming a servant is who you are called to be. And maybe the answer for finding rest for your souls is standing next to Jesus, not working for him, but working with him.
Jesus is Lord. Because God is Father, we are sons. Because Jesus is Lord, we are saints. What? Servants. And yet in all these situations, he also calls these people saints. The word saint basically means holy one. In fact, in the latest NIV, they've taken the word saint out and they just replaced it with holy one. It means holy one. We sing songs that say, only you are holy. But the same word used for the angels who sang holy, 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 that's the word used for us. It's incredible. The same word. In the scriptures, as you read the New Testament, Peter calls us a holy priesthood. He calls us a holy nation. We're called a holy temple, a holy people, a holy bride, holy apostles and prophets. Hebrews calls us holy brothers of Jesus. It's the same word used to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's the same word used to call Jesus the Holy One. In John 17, God calls the Father, Holy Father. And it's used in Revelation to say, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's the same word we are called to be holy. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be holy? There's two main things that I see. The first is that we all know that the word holiness basically has certain, some connotations or insinuations of morality and purity. It's associated with righteousness. Okay, it's associated with being justified legally. Is a justification is a legal term. Again, new covenant term. We are justified legally. We are declared holy. Okay, we are righteous. We're established in righteousness because we know that we are saints. We are holy ones. We are declared holy in the new covenant and we are made literally holy when we are born again. Okay, this is a big deal. If we only believe the new covenant, the legal thing that I'm clothed in Christ, we can be fooled into believing that God looks at me and he sees Jesus so he thinks I'm holy, but I'm actually tricking him because I'm hiding in Jesus and I'm not really holy because he can only see Jesus. So I'm, I'm legally holy, but not really, not literally. No, 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 no. You are legally holy in Christ, but you've been born again. So you are literally holy. The caterpillar has become a butterfly and it's not a caterpillar in drag pretending that it's something it's not. We're not fooling God, dressing up, pretending God won't notice that I'm really something that I'm not. No, we are literally holy because we are a new creation in Christ. I am not a sinner that has been saved, but I'm still a sinner. No, I'm legally declared a saint and I am literally have become a saint. As always, my challenge is to then live out that sainthood. Live out that sainthood in the eyes of other people. And so that's part of the aspect of what holiness means. But it means more than that because as you read through the scripture, the word holy is used to describe other things. The Bible is called the holy scriptures. The covenant is called holy. The commands are called holy. There is such a thing in the Bible as a holy kiss. There's holy angels. There's a holy place. There's a holy temple, holy city, holy Jerusalem, holy mountain, holy transfiguration. In the Old Testament, there were utensils, knives and forks that were holy. Now, if holy just means moral, how can a fork be more moral than another one? If holiness was just about morality or integrity or justification, then how can a fork or a tithe be holy 
And that mountain be holy, but that mountain's not holy. Bad thoughts for that mountain, good thoughts. What's the deal with that? Well, holiness means more than just morality. The literal definition of holiness encompasses two things. It means, first of all, to be special or sacred, special and sacred, and set apart for a special purpose. So all those utensils are holy, not because they're moral, but because they're special, they're valuable, and they're set apart for a proper purpose. Okay? Holy set apart for a purpose. It's why Jesus says in Matthew, don't give holy things to dogs or pearls to pigs. Don't take a holy thing, a special thing, and just treat it like food scraps. Don't take something that's valuable, holy, and just give it to your dogs like it's worth nothing. No, it's worth something. And a holy thing you treat well. A special thing you treat well. I, got, I turned 40 last year. I know I don't look a day over 39, but I got turned 40 last year. My leadership team pitched in and bought me a watch. This thing is special. It's holy. And so when I packed it, I put it in a box. When I got to my hotel, I put it in a safe. I only wear it out on kind of special occasions. See how special you are? I only wore it for special occasions, you see? I, only, I don't because it's special. So you treat it well. That's what you do with holy things. You don't give it to dogs and pigs. You treat it with value because it's special and it has a special purpose. One of the things that helped me and my wife keep our pants on when we were teenagers was the fact that we had, I, well, I'll just speak personally, I had a revelation when I was 16 that sex is a holy thing. It means it's, it's a special thing. God's not a prude and sex isn't bad or ugly or dirty so you avoid it. That's a terrible way to bring up kids. No, no, no. Sex is an awesome thing. It's a really good thing. And it's so good, it is holy, which means it's special, which means you treat it in a special way. You don't treat it cheap. Like a cheap watch, you treat it special. It is special and it has a special or specific purpose to fulfill. And my conviction, God spoke to me when I was 16 because I had friends going out on weekends, getting favours done, you know, the whole thing, typical teenagers. And I'm like, God, what's the deal with this? And God spoke to me and said, I've destined you to one day be married and your sexuality is special. It's not yours. The Bible says it belongs to another. Sex is holy. It's a special thing and it has a special purpose. Now, I believe the, purpose, the main purpose of sex in a, in, a, in a cosmic reality is to display the relationship of Christ in his church, that awesome oneness of the two becoming one, this mystery of, of, of two being so close together, it goes just beyond physical body. That's why those of us, we know that we're, those of us who have been mistreated in a sexual way know that sexuality, it's more than just something physical. The mistreatment, being mistreated sexually goes beyond just physical pain. Okay, because sex is a holy, special thing and it's also a powerful thing. Yeah. And so like fire, special and powerful, it needs to be handled with care. Yeah. Why did I get onto that? Because <laughs> the young people are falling asleep and you just need to say sex, <laughs> you see, just to get their attention. They said, no, no, it's holy. That's, that's the revelation. It was holy. Uh, these guys have heard me say, you know, my wife and I were virgins on the day we got married. And I think the way things went on our wedding night, we're still virgins the next day as well. Because uh, kind of took us a while to work things out. But we got there. It was great. So we got four kids. Okay, we managed it after a while. But the point is, sex is not something to be treated lightly because holy things you treat with care. 
Holy things you treat well and holy things have a special purpose. And you are holy. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. You are holy. You are a saint. You are a saint legally declared holy. You are a saint literally because you've been reborn, pure. Now live that lifestyle out. Live the life of a saint. Live as someone who is special, who is valuable, who Jesus has bought with His blood. That's how valuable I am. That's how valuable you are. That's the price tag that is on you. That's how special I am. So I'll treat myself with dignity, honour and respect because I'm valuable. I won't let others do certain things to me under my control when I'm, because I'm valuable. And I know that as a holy thing, I also have a special purpose. And ultimately, my friends, your purpose is to know God and to show Him to others because you're a son, because you're a servant, you're a holy one like Him. Your job is to show the world who Jesus is. Your job is to, re- your job is to reveal the name and nature of the invisible God so people can anchor uh, God in the flesh in your life. Knowing I'm special, And set apart gives me value. I'm special, I've got value. But knowing I'm set apart gives me vision. I've got a reason to live. Knowing I'm special shows me my price. But knowing I've got a purpose gives me purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. Knowing I'm special gives me dignity. But knowing I have a purpose gives me direction where I make good decisions in life because I know I'm here for a purpose. Does that make sense? Being holy is just not a moral thing. It doesn't just fit in that. It means something bigger. It means being special and so valuable, but also having a purpose, a reason to exist. And your existence, like Jesus said, I finished the work you've given me. And as you've sent me, now I send them. What work did he finish? It said right at the beginning, he showed he revealed God's name to people. He showed us what God is like. That is our purpose as well, to reveal God's name and nature to people. And so the writer of Hebrews can say, make every effort to be holy. Make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I am legally holy and I'm going to see God one day because I've been declared righteous in His sight. I am literally holy and I see God, I know Him, I can meet Him face to face because I'm literally holy and I encounter Him. I see God because Jesus has made me holy. But Hebrews 12 says, make every effort to be holy because if you're not holy, no one will see God in you. It's not live holy so that you are good enough to see God for yourself. Live at peace with all men and be holy before all men because without holiness, no one will see God. I want people to see God in me. So I will live holy, not for God's sake, ultimately. Well, it is for His sake because it's His reputation. But I will live holy because I want you to see the God that I love. I want you to see I want you to see God. I want people to see God. So I will make every effort to live like I'm valued and to live like I've got a special purpose in life. Does that make sense? We are holy. We're going to finish with Colossians 
And so Paul says this in, in, in Colossians, it's just the next book over. He spends chapter three by saying, you are in Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. And then he says, now clothe yourself with the new you, the new you who is a son, who is a servant and a saint. And then he says this in verse 12, Colossians 3:12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people who are holy, you are holy and you are dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the clothes you are to wear. Why? So God sees you this way? No, so other people see God is kind. God is compassionate. God is good. God is gentle. God is kindness. Wear that external clothing of good character so that other people can see who you really are. Dress appropriately. Dress in these qualities because that's who you really are. It fits your identity when you wear compassion. It fits your identity when you clothe yourself with kindness. It represents you well and it represents your dad well and it represents your master well when you wear these on the outside. What else does he say? Bear with each other and forgive one another. This is wearing forgiveness. If any one of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has already forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity or harmony. Paul's encouraging these people to dress externally according to who they are legally, who they are literally in the spirit. Now live that out so other People can see who you are. Your behaviour will not determine your identity because that will not change. But your behaviour will demonstrate your identity to others. Just bear with me for another minute. I've got a story to tell. My parents retired two years ago and started um, cleaning up their house. My brothers and sisters come over from Hobart and we went to their house and started clearing out 30 years of stuff they had in the home. I don't know how many of you have done that with your parents, but uh, it was quite an exercise going through the house that I grew up in and seeing all the stuff I used to have as a child, going through seeing homework from stuff we'd made at school uh, projects that we'd done, awards that we'd received, a whole bunch of stuff that you get when you're a kid, you know. And one of the things we noticed when we were going through stuff is um, some of the things that we used to have as kids. When I was 12, one of the things you may not know about me, one of the identities I had when I was 12 was that I was a Boy Scout and I uh, used to be a Cub Scout, and we were in the Sea Cubs, so we, were, we wore blue. I played tennis when I was a 12-year-old, and I found my old tennis racket. I found the stuff that I had when I was in primary school. And when I found my Cub Scout uniform, the thought occurred to me, gee, I wonder if that still fits me. <laughs> the very uniform I had when I was 12 years old. And... You know, just a bit of an experiment. I thought, I'll give it a go. You never believe it. 
it, uh, it still fits a treat. This is uh, what I used to wear when I was 12. And uh, as you can see, it's still a good fit. You see, when I was 12, I was prepubescent. I was a primary school student. I was a Cub Scout. I was not a father. I did not have four kids. I was not a pastor or a preacher. I was a little kid who was 12. And when I was 12, this used to suit me really well. And so it was highly appropriate for me to wear this clothing because it revealed who I was. And how many of you know that even though I can wear this clothing today, I can, I've proven it to you. Even though I can wear this clothing today, it doesn't suit me anymore. And while it might be a little bit funny for you, anyway, it's very uncomfortable for me, I'll tell you. While it might be a little bit funny now, it would not be funny if I walked around my town in Victor Harbour like this. Every day, as a father of four, as a pastor in my community, as a leader in my church, getting up in front of my church, if I was to do this. Why? Because it's not me. I can wear these clothes if I want. And in my previous life, it made sense for me to do this. When I was a sinner, it made sense for me to sin because that's what I was. But now I'm a saint. That doesn't make sense anymore. I can still do it. But I've been given a whole new wardrobe now as a believer in Christ. When I was a caterpillar, it made sense to crawl on my tummy. But when God made me a new creation and a butterfly, it now makes sense for me to fly. I can crawl on my belly if I want, but I'm not being true to the real me. And I'm not demonstrating to other people the beauty of what God has made me to be. The tragedy of that little girl is she was born a human. She acted like a dog because she didn't know who she was. And it would be tragic if I was to walk around wearing these clothes, which made sense when I was 12, but makes no sense now. It is ridiculous. It's very ridiculous, believe me, and very uncomfortable. So listen, lying doesn't suit you anymore. It's ridiculous. And you can do it if you want, but it's not you. Being cheap and stingy, it's not you. It's not you. You're a new creation, born in the image of a generous God. That's who you are. God has given you a whole new wardrobe to demonstrate His nature to other people. You are a son legally, born again literally. Now live out that sonship by taking the acceptance, the affirmation and the authority that you have and represent your dad, expand his, biz, expand his business. You are a servant. You are a servant, a voluntary servant that says, Lord, you're such a good master. I want to represent you well. And you are a saint. You are holy, declared holy legally, had a whole new identity change. And so certain things don't suit you anymore. Live out that holiness. Live out the reality that you are valuable and that you have a purpose in life. And that special purpose is to demonstrate who God is and what He is like to a world that desperately needs to have a good perception of God. I encourage you to respond and I'm just going to do it tonight exactly where you are. It's going to be real simple. Son, 
servant, saint. Of those three, maybe you guys can get yourself ready back there. Get me out of this uniform pretty quick. (laughs) Of those three, which one do you want tonight to start this weekend and go, Lord, help me be more established in that identity? All of them are important, each of them. Son, servant, saint. But maybe one of them really spoke to you more than others. Pick one. And we're going to pray that God will release greater revelation in that area for you to be established in. Or maybe you just have to stand, you just have to stand and go, God, I know that's my identity. I'm making a stand to say I'll live up to it. Because I don't want to look like this clown. If tonight the one that matters to you the most, you think, you know what, son, the fact that I'm God's child, that I'm adopted legally, I've been born again, I'm called to represent my dad. If that's the one that means the most to you, why don't you stand to your feet and say, Lord, establish me as a son. If that's you, son, why don't you stand up now. If that's one that's spoken to you the most. Come on. Yeah, awesome. Come on. Father, we thank you for that grace this weekend. Those of you who servant, if that's the one that resonated the most with you, yeah, Lord, establish me as your servant. If that's the one that spoke the most to you, why don't you stand and say, yes, I stand in that identity tonight. In Jesus' name. And maybe tonight it just you're in awe of the fact that you're holy. That that is not who you are called to be, but it's who you are called. If you say, Lord, this weekend, reveal to me what it means to be a saint, to truly live out a holy life. Reveal to me what it means that I am holy. I stand as a saint tonight. If that's the one that spoke to you the most, why don't you stand? Say, yes, that's me. Come on. Awesome. Why don't you strike the pose to receive? I can't lift my hands, so I'm not going to ask you to lift yours. (laughs) Holy Spirit, you are our great teacher, the one that brings revelation of all truth and makes it transforms our lives and manifests truth, manifests truth, not just information, but manifestation that brings transformation. And tonight, Lord God, we thank You for what You've revealed to us. And I personally take that and say, thank You for what You've spoken to me tonight. And today I make a stand and I ask You, Lord, I wanna be more established in my identity in Christ. I thank You, Lord God, for revealing what it means to be a son, revealing what it means to serve my good King, and revealing my sainthood to me. So I open my heart to you and I say, I am who you say I am. Tonight, I make the good confession. You love me, you're proud of me and you've authorised me and I stand secure in my identity tonight. In Jesus' awesome Name.